Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Record numbers of Americans turned out to vote in this week's midterm elections, a referendum on the presidency of Donald Trump. So who won the spoils? I'm not on the ballot, but in a certain way, I'm on the ballot, so please go out and vote. And at the end of the day, the president's going to work with whoever comes into office. The first woman to wear a hijab. To I think it was a great victory. And actually, some of the news this morning was that it was, in fact, a great victory. Tomorrow will be a new day in America. Both parties claim victory. The Republicans have strengthened their position in the Senate, but after eight years in the wilderness, the Democrats have won back control of the House of Representatives. So is the country in for two years of gridlock, or could the dealmaker-in-chief usher in a new age of bipartisanship? You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, after all that voting hoopla, what do the midterms mean for America? Our U.S. editor, John Priddo, has dashed into the studio. He's got a pile of copy on the election races, hot off the printer. Hello there, John. Hi, I'm. Donald Trump is saying this is a terrific result for Republicans, but the House is in Democratic hands. What are we to make of it? Well, whenever an election happens in America, there's very quickly a kind of post-game spin room, isn't there, where both sides try and say, oh, actually, we did better than expectations and... Um, I think in this case, you have to look at the state of the economy, which is very, very strong. Unemployment is near a 50-year low. If you look at wages for people who have only high school educations in America, they were 6.5% higher in the third quarter of this year than they were on the previous year. You know, the American economy is going gangbusters. Given that, I think it's not a great performance from the president's party, particularly, obviously, if you look at losing the House of Representatives. That said, Republicans did a bit better in the Senate than expected. People expected them to hold their majority. In fact, they increased it a bit. Various Democratic candidates in the Senate who one might have thought would be close got absolutely blown away. Let's look at a bit more detail at that result in the House. It wasn't exactly a blue wave. Would it be fair to call it a series of blue splashes or are you a bit more upbeat about it from the perspective of the Democratic Party's hopes? Well, I'm a very bad amateur surfer, so I quite like small waves. I'm partial to small waves. It was a small wave, I think. I mean, if you look at the popular vote, Democrats won by seven percentage points in the House. That's pretty decent. You know, that is not a, a knife-edge result. Um, it doesn't necessarily translate into a kind of blowout victory because of a couple of things, partly because of the way that Democratic voters are kind of concentrated in cities and partly because of gerrymandering. There's a bit of that as well. But they won pretty handily. And I suppose most importantly, most consequentially, they will have their majority as of January when the new Congress sits. And that will come with some oversight powers, which I'm sure they'll make full use of. And when you say make full use of, just draw us as, as far as you can see ahead 
a map to what you think the Democrats will do now that they have control of the House? Are, are they after a great bipartisan, here we are, we're taking responsibility, we're showing that we, the party, can go back to government? Or are they out to go after Donald Trump and to really show that they're back, which is what their base really wants them to do? I think it'll be a bit of both. On the oversight, I could imagine them requesting Donald Trump's tax returns. That will set up a big fight with the administration. I think they will also, at least if you listen to you know, democratic leaders, they'll look to work with the president where they can, perhaps on infrastructure, perhaps on you know pricing of pharmaceuticals. There are some areas of of agreement. Um, you know whether they can get past the uh, the rhetoric and the kind of bile. Um, I don't know. And clearly, a lot of the onus there is on the president as well. Think they're ever going to get those tax returns? I'm going to say yes. I mean, the legal arguments to me look, it looks like the House has that power. So I think it's going to be a tough argument to keep the tax returns out of the House's hands. Whether they become public or not, maybe another question. What about the other races? Which are the races that look to you to be the ones which will have most traction, most impact going forward? The big one, I think, is Florida, which is the quintessential swing state. Any candidate in 2020 who wins Florida will have an easier route to the White House. Republicans did really well in Florida. You know, they were narrow victories, but they won both the governorship and the Senate seat that was up for election. A line that leapt out of the leader you wrote for us, for me, was this. Running up vast vote shares in New York and California is impressive, but it will never deliver a governing majority. Are you suggesting that the Democratic Party needs to temper its enthusiasm about the advances that it's made this week? I think so, to some extent. I mean, they the party's discovered that it can sort of win big in the popular vote by, by rallying the base. And that's great. But... If it means that you win, you know, kind of blowout victories in places where you'd win already, it really doesn't help you in a system that isn't built around the party that gets the most votes, right? This is a system that balances those kind of majoritarian parts with handing a lot of power to bits of the country where there are far fewer people. And, you know, the Democratic Party, I think, after the election result, looks even less able to win in those places than before. So that ought to be a big concern. And Donald Trump himself, of course, bullish out there, telling us all how marvellous he was and, and that, that the Senate result had proved it. But is Donald Trump's path to staying in the White House, if such is his intention, more difficult now? Or does it make not much difference to the sort of Trump machine as it rolls on? I think it's about where we were as far as that that goes. You know, Florida looks good for the Republicans, but he won Florida last time around. I mean, in terms of sort of places where the Democrats might draw some hope, aside from in the House of Representatives, they came quite close in Texas. That's quite a remarkable thing. You know, no statewide Democrat has won in Texas for an awfully long time. And Beto O'Rourke spent a fortune, didn't get there, but he got quite close. I left John to get back to his crossheads, his headlines, all of that dark magic it takes to put the US section together in this week's paper, but he'll be back. As John mentioned, in Texas, Democratic hopes for Senator were riding on Beto O'Rourke. His campaign caught international attention. It raised around $70 million and it gained an endorsement from Beyonce, no less. He was narrowly defeated by former Republican presidential hopeful Ted Cruz. I spoke to Ted Cruz's former chief of staff, Chip Roy. Mr. Roy was on the ballot himself in Texas on Tuesday, and after a close race, he's now congressman-elect for the San Antonio area. 
I started, though, by asking him about the senator race and what had helped Cruz finally beat his challenger, O'Rourke. Senator ran, I think, a campaign that is consistent with the values of the vast majority of Texas voters. And he did so against, of course, the uh, onslaught of a significant amount of money coming in on behalf of his opponent, Congressman O'Rourke. And a lot of those resources we saw were coming from, you know, all over the nation and coming from quarters, frankly, that wanted to see change in Texas that didn't necessarily align up with most of the Texas voters that I've been privileged to get to know over the years, and particularly during my own race. And Senator Cruz ran a strong race. He ran, again, unapologetically on his own record as a conservative Texan, and and he prevailed. And I think that was strongly because he was consistent with his own record and the people, the voters, uh, wanted to see him come back to Washington. You refer to that money there flooding in, some $70 million, and indeed the endorsement for uh, for his Democratic Party rival from Beyonce. Does that not send shivers down your spine as you look forward and think, well, this kind of money now can flow into races where once the Democrats would not have been raising anything like this profile? Well, I tell you, as a uh, cancer survivor, a political race doesn't send a chill down my spine. One of the problems we have today is that political rhetoric has gotten to where it's somehow life and death. It's not. I think that Texas is is strong. People move there because they seek freedom. I think people will see that and continue to see that going forward. Uh, I'm not worried about dollars flooding into Texas somehow affecting the race. I had a woman who came up to me about two months ago at a campaign event. She wrote me a nice check and she said, I need you to win because you know what? I've got nowhere else to go. And I just moved here from California two weeks ago and I've got nowhere else to go to live free. And There's a lot of people that I see who do that when they move to Texas. Political asylum in Texas. Absolutely. We've got refugees from California, from New York and all over the place. Going forward, how can the parties work together? One example is the plan for the border wall. Would that be something that you can imagine being the subject of trade-offs in the House? Well, if we're going to have a conversation, if the House leadership wants to discuss setting a goal and getting there, The goal is operational control of the border of the United States to ensure that our sovereign nation is protected and to ensure that immigrants are protected rather than having children getting sold into the sex trafficking business at the hands of a vicious cartel because our country, in the false name of compassion, sits back and says that open borders is somehow good for immigrants because that's the current state of things. And so if we want to sit down and have a serious conversation with our Democrat friends on the other side of the aisle about operational control of the border, I'm happy to do it. I've spent hours down meeting with Border Patrol down in Laredo and all along the the border of the state of Texas. I'd say, come join me. Let's come have a hearing down on the border because compromise is, is when you're talking about, well, should we have more cameras or more Border Patrol agents? Should we have more walls or should we have more roads along the Rio Grande? Should we have cane cleared so that the guys can see the river? Or should we just duck our heads in the sand and pretend that the border is not open? So I'd love to have that conversation. I would welcome it. More broadly, your campaign has run on the idea that Donald Trump hasn't done nearly enough. I think you've said if there's a thousand miles to go, we've gone maybe 50 miles. That doesn't sound like a complete vote of confidence in the president's executive functioning. Well, look, I think that what we've seen in the administration over the last almost two years coming up on it uh, has been encouraging from my standpoint, from a regulatory effort, what we've seen happen with putting more money in the the hands of taxpayers, obviously working with Congress to do that, to get the bill across, and obviously appointing good judges. And we keep going down the list. I think those are all good things, but we've got so much farther to go, as you pointed out. And again, it shouldn't be partisan. I don't know why it would be partisan to say that we should balance the budget. And let me be clear. 
Republicans failed, 100 percent failed, uh, whether that was in the in the Congress or the executive branch to balance the budget in the last two years. And that's part of why voters made some changes. And Republicans need to paint with bold colours. In short, and also for, for listeners who may not be across every detail, you're anxious about the size of the deficit. $21.5 trillion of debt is unconscionable. It's grown almost a trillion dollars in my campaign alone, if you can believe that, since I announced last December. And this is $175,000 for every taxpayer. It's probably higher now. That's a number that keeps growing. And, uh, you know, people just bury their head in the sand on both sides of the is aisle. Is Donald Trump burying his head in the sand about the scale of the deficit? Well, I think the president sent and his team sent a five-year balanced budget plan to Congress in March of 2017, a year and a half ago. And Congress, Republicans, to be clear, laughed it down the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. And guess what? The voters now laughed a few of those Republicans back home sitting back in their district rather than representing them. I think it's time that Republicans and Democrats get serious about balancing the budget. In what universe is that a partisan issue? The world, and I assume you in The Economist, should be concerned about the state of the future of the economic health of the United States if we continue to spend money that we don't have. And that's what we're doing right now. Certainly. It's a subject we come back to quite quite regularly. We can definitely reassure you on that one. Just uh, something else. Donald Trump's style, his modus operandi. We saw him yesterday starting out on bullish form, but then that press conference, frankly, did turn very nasty, did it not? And what did you make of that, that treatment there of Jim Acosta from CNN and now the White House taking his press pass away? Wouldn't you advise the president to step back from this aggression towards what is in the end is a pillar of the American freedom that you value so highly. I think the the free press should obviously be protected, but it is a two-way street. Look, Jim, I've followed Jim and watched this over the last several years. Jim clearly takes a lot of this personally. Jim clearly wears a lot of this on his sleeve. Jim and a lot of the people in the press are no longer even trying to hide their political biases in the way they cover things. Now, take the president out of it. That is highly concerning to me. But you come down to the fact that you either have a a system in which the press can be pretty irksome and you've got a First Amendment, most free speech country on this earth. Do you think that the White House should take away press accreditation from people who ask what the White House or Donald Trump considers to be the wrong question? You have to look at whatever the question might be asked. I can't assess what happened yesterday with Jim because just truth be told, I haven't seen what Jim said exactly. But what I would say is this. There are some questions that at some point would cause, I think, a White House to say, look, you know, I don't know why we're going to have you here if you're disrupting the ability of the American people to hear from the other hundred people in the room who have important questions to ask to make sure that the people get the honest news and are being held accountable. But it doesn't have to eject a member of the press, perhaps, to reach that goal. Last uh, thought from you, if I could. This Congress is going to be hobbled by division, isn't it? What do you think a Republican majority in the Senate and that minority in the House will mean overall for what gets done and what doesn't? Well, I think that will all be decided on whether the Democrat leadership decides to follow their left-wing kind of mob mentality that we saw unfold during the Kavanaugh hearings. And if that prevails, then, uh, you know, we won't get very much done because we'll spend time uh, spinning our wheels on hearings and going down some rabbit trails with respect to already having pledges and having preordained that they might want to impeach Kavanaugh or impeach Trump none of which is based on 
significant history of the rule of law with respect to what impeachment actually means, but it's rather just political rhetoric. And if that's the way the Democrat leadership wants to go, then uh, the House won't get a whole lot done and the Senate will focus on confirmation. But I think what's going to happen is that Democrat leadership is going to have to realize if Republicans do their job and start putting out the message of what we need to do to balance our budget, to have health care freedom, to secure our border, to uh, do the things that we need to do to keep making America strong and make our military strong, they're going to have to focus on the reality of that and uh, what it actually means to have a representative democracy and do the tough job of governing. Chip Roy there. And someone he might be bumping into on the other side among the coffee bars of Congress is Tim Ryan, just re-elected for his fifth term as Democratic representative for Ohio's 13th Congressional District, with a strong majority of over 60%. Mr Ryan was just 29 when he first entered the House, and I wanted to know what chance does a seasoned Democrat in the House see of any real collaboration emerging from the current bitter fray on the Hill. What we have now is oversight of the executive branch, and we can let the American people know what he's doing. The Republican House and Senate have swept under the rug numerous things that he has been up to, just with regulations around climate change, the environment, you know, people he's putting into really important positions in his government. We will now have oversight of all that. That's a pretty big deal. And uh, I think that will temper his ambitions a little bit. And, you know, legislatively, we can block anything that he tries to pass, like this tax cut that he passed that went primarily to the top 1% of the people in the country. We would have been able to block that if we had the House of Representatives so we can prevent any further legislation from from moving. And that's really important. And hopefully we can build for, you know, and pass things in the House of Representatives and send to the Senate things that we believe in as Democrats and then argue in the 2020 election, either we were able to get it done with the Senate and the president or he did not pass it. And then we stand for election on on that issue. But is it fundamentally, you think, a blocking maneuver? And where do you think this balance of power is going to lie with Congress split? Is it going to be, well, here's the things we want to block? And you gave an example there of that tax cut. At the same time, there is a hankering, or at least a declared hankering, uh, to get back to bipartisan legislative progress. These two things compete with each other, don't they? Well, that's the art of politics, you know, uh, you know, standing up to Trump when we need to and working with him when we see an opportunity to do something that's best for the American people. And I, I'm of the school of thought that we should say uh, we're going to hold uh, President Trump's feet to the fire on the promises he made when he was campaigning for president in places like Ohio, where I represent. You know, he he said he wanted to expand health care. He said he wanted to do a a big transportation uh, bill about one and a half trillion dollars. He said he wanted to have the wealthy pay more because they were making more. We can give him an opportunity to fulfill all these promises. He also said he wanted to drain the swamp in Washington, D.C. Let's give him an opportunity to do that. So we should pass bills out of the House of Representatives that meet his own personal standards that he campaigned on. And I think that would be something that the American people would like. And again, if we have to fight him on things and push back on things or provide oversight, we can do that. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. Donald Trump is a figure who excites such strong opposition that it really does become visceral. And that is certainly true uh, across a large sway of the Democratic Party. Is there a danger that the House becomes a place where revenge 
is extracted. Uh, there is a hounding of the president, which might take some of us with long memories back to Newt Gingrich, uh, the Republicans, uh, going after Bill Clinton there. Is there any danger in that as, as a strategy, do you think? Oh, yeah. I think if we're seen as being vengeful, I think we will get punished in the 2020 elections. There's a difference between providing thoughtful, responsible, constitutionally mandated oversight of the executive branch that is done in a sober way and being vengeful. Uh, and I think as long as the American people see us doing things in a mature way with, with regard to oversight and also pushing an agenda that would help them, I think they will begin to see the Democrats as the responsible governing party. And we need to talk to our constituents like they're adults. But uh, I don't think anybody wants vengeance. I've not, I'm not a fan of this whole idea. You know, they go low, we go lower, or they go low and we kick them. I just think that kind of rhetoric is irresponsible. And I don't think it's good for democracy. We're allowed to have our arguments, but American people want us to get along. So let's look at the Democratic House enabling congressional oversight of the presidency again. Committee chairs will also have the the power of subpoena. Uh, Trump just warned in his press conference that if Democrats start investigating him, he'll shut down efforts at bipartisanship and it will be their fault. So runs the Trump logic. He might have a point. Well, we're going to have to wait and see. Again, that's the art of politics. You know, so we'll see where that goes. But we have a responsibility if we think there there is uh, evidence that the president of the United States may be compromised, then we have a responsibility to to fix that and to bring that to light. That's our ultimate responsibility is to protect the integrity of these constitutional offices. And, you know, that's not always a, a pretty to do, especially when you're dealing with somebody like Donald Trump. So we'll see what happens. Where does this leave impeachment and the threat of of impeachment? Some people think it might be the way to go after Donald Trump. Others think that he might well win that argument or it could play to his ability to say they're all out to get me and consolidate his base. Where are you minded on that, Congressman? Well, I don't think we should do anything until, you know, Mueller comes with his his probe and his findings He's put a lot of effort, has a very good team. We should wait and see uh, what that looks like. I you know, don't think we need to get into the business of impeaching people and presidents without any, any uh, evidence that has been thoroughly put together by somebody with the caliber uh, of, of a Mueller. And so I think we, we wait and see. But our focus needs to be on the economy and working class people making more money, having security in retirement and having access to affordable health care. That's really what we need to be focused on. And I think not to mention that impeachment isn't going to go anywhere in the Senate anyway. In practice, what do you think will happen in the next few weeks, which is, of course, this transitional period when things can be moved around or timetables can be changed? Do you think that we will see certain issues either pushed on or off the table as we go into this transition to that Democratic majority in the House? I think there'll be some conversations that are probably starting to happen now with with the House of Representatives and our committee chairs in the White House about opportunities that may, may come up for for us to work together. You know, what are the big issues we can start on? You know, the presidential election is until next year. I just think we can take a year of our time and find out what we can work on together, move together, push together, implement together. 
and then have a fight next year during the presidential race about, uh, you know, about who's done a better job. Tim Ryan on the art of politics, being bipartisan but pushing home your own advantage at the same time. Our own John Prido has penned a leader. It says, among other things, that the Democrats will need to be disciplined and he recommends that they hold back on that desire for revenge. What's his thinking? So that's partly a question of kind of offering them some tactical advice. I mean, quite clearly, the centre of the country is not where the left of the Democratic Party is at the moment. You can see that from the results um, in the midterms. There's a part of the party that would you know, like to go after impeachment, um, you know, all, all that kind of thing, sort of confrontation, all confrontation all the time. I don't think that helps them in terms of winning sort of political power um, next time around. But then I suppose the, the bigger thing there is that they have a chance perhaps to do some good for the country. You know, were they to get a decent infrastructure bill through and something that Donald Trump's talked about a lot in the past two years. There's been an infrastructure week at least once a month, so far as I can see, for the White House. Um, but as anyone who's traveled around America, like you have, knows um, you could really do with some some spending there. So it's partly tactical, but it's partly just for the health of the country. I, I also think you know, America is very divided uh, politically, and the only way out of that is to find some way back towards compromise, which is an incredibly unfashionable thing at the moment, but but is necessary ultimately for the health of the democracy. I'm push you a bit harder on bipartisanship, because hard enough uh, it, at the best of times. What about the really, the big divisive subjects which can mark out this era in American politics? What about immigration? Is there any room there to get back to a point? Of course, the parties often had different views, but they were able to work on immigration together, even looking back to both the the Bush presidencies. At all possible with this president looking at what's going on down at the border? Well, you're right, Anne. The parties have moved further apart on immigration than they were under George W. Bush. After the election campaign we've just had, it's pretty hard to see compromise on this. You know, the Republicans closing argument, the advert that was put out basically accused the Democrats of letting sort of murderers into the country, illegal alien murderers to kill policemen. You know, that's not a great place to start if you're interested in bipartisanship. That said, we've got a Lexington column in this week's issue, which basically argues that there might be some room there and that the Democrats ought to offer to pay for Donald Trump's wall in exchange for some sensible immigration reform, i.e. do something big and splashy and uh, give him what he wants there. So maybe. You could actually imagine Democrats stepping forward to pay for the, the wall, which they've seen as a symbol of everything that's wrong with Donald Trump. It sounds crazy, but it might be a smart move, yeah. John Prido, our US editor. One area where smart thinking will be needed to unfreeze the conflict on immigration is in the border states. And Deb Haaland is the new Democrat congresswoman for New Mexico's first district. She made a kind of history on Tuesday, and she spoke to me on the line from Albuquerque. As the first Native woman, myself and Sharice Davis from Kansas 3, I have to believe that tribes across the country will feel like they have my voice to push their issues forward, and and I want them to feel comfortable coming to me. If you've always been represented in Congress, then it's easy to say that you don't vote identity politics. If you've never seen yourself, if you've never personally been represented, if you've never had anybody that looks remotely like you in Congress, 
then maybe you feel, yes, it is time that we have a different face, uh, a different color of skin, a different background, you know, bringing a different cultural perspective to the Congress that will help us to solve some of these problems. You're in a state where immigration and the proximity of the border with Mexico is on people's minds all the time. And groups have different views on that, don't they? Whether or not Native Americans don't feel the same way about it. There's a lot of a, a split, if you like, between groups and identity politics and the politics of the border. What do you think the best way forward is on that? Well, here in New Mexico, yes, we are a border state. I believe that there are a large number of New Mexicans, a large number of Americans who are saying no to the border wall. It's a huge expense that none of us should have to pay for. There also is an Indian tribe in Arizona, the Tohono O'odham tribe, whose tribal border boundaries traverse both Arizona and Mexico. So uh, they don't want the wall either. We are incensed that recently, you know, children were snatched from their mother's arms. Uh, We don't like uh, the president making, you know, the caravan of people who are heading north into criminals when they are families seeking a better life. I really want to make sure that Americans know the truth about what's happening with our immigration so that we can work to make it better, not, you know, fire up the president's base so that they'll vote for Republicans. But if there is to be such a thing as a practical bipartisanship in Congress, it is going to mean trade-offs. And those trade-offs are also going to hit immigration, aren't they? It's one thing to say this is an inhumane system and I don't like the border wall, but we also know that there are tensions there that need to be dealt with. So you know, how bipartisan are you really prepared to be? Well, it depends. Yes, and I understand that. Uh, if we were to put forth a an immigration policy that the Democrats would want, sure, the Republicans are going to come back and say, we're not going to vote for this or we're not going to vote for that. So maybe at that point, we decide how we go about negotiating on a bill that everyone can agree on. I get that. And I, I would be prepared to look at it, to to argue it, to do whatever we need to do to make sure that that we are working on an immigration policy that, above all, is truly humane. But I, I think we can get there. And if it was a provocation that was put by my colleague, uh, US editor John Prido, early on, it might be worth, in some cases, even accepting the intention of Donald Trump to build the border wall in return for an overall better immigration policy. Would you agree? I would have to see a proposition like that. But at this moment in time, I completely oppose a border wall. It's it's non-negotiable as far as you're concerned. I don't think it's necessary. I think we could put uh, an expense like that to work in so many other ways. There's so many needs out there for America, uh, right? Everybody needs health care, for example. We need to repair our crumbling public schools. I, I just can't in all consciousness go for approving a border wall at that kind of expense. I wondered if you did feel there's a tension between the desire on the Democratic side and parts of the Republican Party to rebuild this bipartisanship in America and at the same time a very fierce president out there, you straight away making a whole new load of enemies uh, and also impressing his base doubtless by saying things that are intended to keep the divisions great. 
do you worry that it could come across as a sort of now is our moment, lots of newcomers coming into Congress who really want to show Donald Trump a thing or two and end up not really being part of a bipartisan process at all? Well, I, I mean, I'm willing to work with anybody who wants to move our country forward, of course. I, you know, and I think we should start on things we can agree with. Uh, there are two Native American congressmen on the Republican side, and now there's two Native women on the Democratic side. And I almost feel like, uh, where do we start uh, with with moving something forward that's bipartisan? Maybe it's there. Maybe we all agree that we should find a way to address this epidemic of missing and murdered Native women. Maybe we should all agree uh, that um, Indian tribes need uh, more funding for justice systems in their communities. Uh, maybe we could all agree on a Native American voting rights bill. So whatever mm. it is, you know, wherever it is that we can agree, I think that's where we should start. And, um, you know, recently it's interesting that right before the election, the Democrats have been talking about protecting pre-existing conditions for years, right, in uh, the Affordable Care Act. And the Republicans have been against it. And, and recently uh, they have come out saying they're for protecting pre-existing conditions, right? <laughs> so regardless of, I mean, how they go about it, I guess we can look at any bipartisanship we can and make sure that we are finding ways to agree on things and move them forward for the American people. Deb Haaland, freshly elected to Congress. The midterms have changed the political landscape, and that will affect the Mueller investigation and a number of hot-button issues we've discussed in this show. The border wall, the economy, healthcare, and climate change. There were also ballot initiatives that made a significant mark too. In Florida, voting rights were restored for felons once they've served their sentences, provided they were not convicted of murder or sex crimes. It reminds us that the outcome of these midterms will help shape the presidential election of 2020, and suddenly they feel a lot closer. Celinda Lake is one of the Democratic Party's leading political strategists, a veteran of political campaigns. We often call her up to get a take on what's driving the latest electoral trends. So what did Celinda make of the midterms and what they presaged? We started talking about a wave of women newly elected. Oh, I think it's a huge shift, and I think we'll see it. It won't just be the year of the woman. I think the seeds of the decade of the women were planted because uh, not only did we elect women in a different kind of woman at the top, but we filled the pipeline with tons of women in state legislative races and county commission races and AGs. So people that are running for Senate and president and governor four and eight years from now will have won their first election last Tuesday. But what's so interesting, I think, listening, and we've had guests from both parties and also with different positions here on this show, it's not entirely clear who's supposed to be happy with the result and who's supposed to be a bit disappointed. (laughs) Yes. Unless I'm a particularly bad journalist, help me out here. Well, I think the cup is half full and half empty for everyone. I mean, we accomplished our biggest goal, which was to take back the house and the the singularly most important thing. We also elected a number of governors, including in the three states that account for Donald Trump being president, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. We lost those states by 80,000 votes. 
Donald Trump would not be president if we had won those states. We elected Democratic governors in all three of them. Democratic governors do make a difference. So I think we accomplished that. We also elected a record number of women and mobilized a a female base. That said, uh, Donald Trump leaned in in a way that no one else has ever done that we've ever seen in any midterm election, Democrat or Republican. He mobilized the Trump voters, not just Republicans, but the Trump voters. He worked hard to define the race and did it for his base, not so successfully for swing voters, but he proved how formidable he is and how formidable he will be in 2020. It sounds like you give him sort of more credit uh, for thinking things through than a lot of those who are sympathetic to the Democratic Party. Would I be right? Well, I think he's a brilliant strategist. He understands his brand and um, he understands how to create his reality show. And he understands and he's willing to play a very high risk, audacious role in that reality shows. So I think he's quite formidable. And I think his team is quite formidable and would be very foolish to underestimate him because that's a great way for him to get reelected in 2020. I'd love to know what it is that you think that the Democratic Party has to learn from these midterms and perhaps from the fact that that blue wave became, well, depending on, on whether you're an optimist or, or less so, perhaps a series of blue splashes. I think the blue wave was more of a blue swell, but I think it had that makings from the beginning. Uh, I think a lot of the press accounts were overstated. That said, I think there are two things that we learned and saw more than learned in 2018. One is we mobilize our base, they mobilize theirs. This is the first time in a midterm election where both bases were mobilized. Secondly, the Democrats must get an economic message on the eve of the election, we lost solidly the people who thought the economy was in good shape, and we were 15 points behind the Republicans on the economy. We could make it through 2018 like that. We will not win 2020 like that. The Democrats must get an economic message. Celinda Lake. So some reasons to be cheerful for Democrats there in the House and new breakthroughs of candidates in other races. Not yet a clear sign, though, that the Trump machine is grinding to a halt. Let's see how it all looks when the new Congress with a fresh majority beds in and those bipartisan intentions are tested in practice. But meanwhile, we'd like to know what you think. Can a divided Congress work for a divided country? Pop us an email, radioeconomist.com. Tweet us at Economist Radio. We'll have more analysis of the midterms in our print edition and online. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy in London with my colleagues on both sides of the Atlantic. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.